Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. Once again, it's me, Callum Watt, and I am here with Callum Roper. Hello there, everyone. Ollie Walwyn. Good afternoon, everyone. And Bradley Allsop. Happy Sunday, everyone. And today we're going to be discussing three big topics, one of which is the conduct of our local MP, Carl McCartney, uh, and his uh, apparent care for uh, children or lack thereof within his constituency. Uh, We'll also be talking about the uh, controversy that has arisen uh, with the uh, uh, resignation or possible ousting of uh, Scotland's uh, Labour leader, Richard Leonard. And then finally, we'll be talking about the the environment and uh, the state of the aviation industry in the aftermath of COVID-19 and some of the developments that have happened recently uh, regarding Heathrow and the industry in general. So to uh, kick off, uh, a huge row, a huge local row anyway, with uh, Carl McCartney, who's the Conservative MP for Lincoln. Uh, since December 2019, uh, he uh, was one of the few few MPs to uh, vote uh, against having free school meals for children, despite earlier this year uh, expressing grave concern for the children of this country uh, during a lockdown, uh, when he was called out on this hypocrisy by the uh, local Labour Students uh, Society at the University of Lincoln, uh, his response was to uh, block them on Twitter. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it's a social media spat. Maybe it's not the end of the world, but I think it's, um, in, in, in general, it's a, it's a sign of his hypocrisy, isn't it? Uh, that has uh, as much uh, deeper concerns for his constituency. He's voting to starve children. I think that's the uh, that's the more important story, isn't it? Uh, Callum Roper, you're the uh, president of Labour Student Society. What's your take on it? Well, I think it, you're absolutely right to point out the the blatant hypocrisy from Carl McCartney in this. And uh, really, we we were asking a legitimate question. This is the Labour Society about. Um, his positions because he he seems to care about children's welfare and it means opposing a third lockdown but he doesn't seem to care about children's welfare when it comes to feeding them so it's 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 ridiculous and it's vile opinions and positioning from McCartney and I don't think it's very genuine if he genuinely cared for children's well-being their welfare the the fact that they'll get a nutritious meal which benefits them He'd vote for a national lockdown and he would vote for free school meals. And in, in both cases, he's voted in the other direction. So um, I, I think that it's, it's blatant hypocrisy, but it does open up this wider question about accountability for our local MP. Because if we're asking a genuine question, albeit not over the official channels, you're, you're invited to email and send a letter or something like that to the constituency office. But if you're sending him a question on his own public social media account where he's putting out a lot of party political stuff i think it's only valid that we ask a genuine question about the welfare of children not just in this constituency but actually across the country so the fact we've uh, we've been blocked goes to show the times that we're in the fact that the mp for lincoln can block his own constituents because they've asked a question that's a bit too inconvenient for him to answer is is uh is outrageous if you ask me 
Hmm. Another very statesman-like from uh, from one of our uh, local leaders. Uh, Ollie, what's your take on it? Well, I, I think it's a pretty blatant um, dereliction of duty, really. Uh, as Callum says, um, he, he's a public servant. He was elected by local Lincoln folk. And he actually has a very active Twitter account. I think he's got over 10,000 tweets. So you'd think this is a suitable question to ask, you know, perfectly reasonable questions on on his voting record, which, quite frankly, is is pretty shocking if you look into it. Um, yeah, I think this this kind of opens up wider debates about what official channels for this kind of these kind of questions are. Whether he does have actually actually have a, a duty to respond over over Twitter over social media. I mean, we're in the age of social media right now so I, I think i i'm of the opinion that i think it, it should be absolutely reasonable i don't think he should be able to i mean to to block people like that um obviously if if anyone was actually abusive or, or harmful or harass harassing him over social media obviously that that's different but th this wasn't the case at all um so yeah i think it really opens up wider debate um about about policy um and how how we can actually communicate with our MPs because I know a lot of them, um, you know, their official channel is email and they have an office to, to deal with inquiries. Um, but yeah, do they have a, a duty to respond over social media? I suppose is the question. Mm. Bradley, you're a, almost a doctorate in, uh, in political engagement. Um, I wonder what you think uh, about this. How important is Twitter um, and social media in general in in terms of the uh, as being a conduit between uh, the public and our and our elected representatives i i've heard calls in uh, recent months maybe recent years uh, that maybe it's not that useful as a political organizing tool but it has been quite useful clearly for for most politicians in terms of communicating with their um, electorate um, how, how, what role do you think uh, Twitter has go, going forwards, and uh, and, and is is Carl McCartney damaging himself um, here by taking this action? Yeah, I mean, I th I think the, the problem with with the internet in general and social media is it often you know sort of uh, norms and laws sort of lag behind it because it, it's always you know evolving so quickly. Um, but but I think really you know there there should almost be a political right to 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 have uh, to well to not be blocked you know to have access to a representative if if a representative has set up an official you know a, a, a social media page or or something or profile that that is in their official capacity now I'm not quite sure with the account maybe Callum can tell me with the account that was tweeted to for Paul McCartney I'm not quite sure if it you know it's got some sort of official recognition as his official MP sort of account. But he certainly seems to use it for for communicating to the electorate and and for promoting a political agenda. So whether he's quite using it in official capacity, I'm not. It's probably a bit murky and deliberately so. But I think citizens should have a right to be able to engage with their with their elected representatives through that medium if that elected representative has set that up for you know the purpose of, of communicating with the voters. I I think to be blocked on that unless, like Ollie said, you know, unless you're being sort of abusive or, or breaking the terms of, of of what that social media site has. I think you should actually have a right to have your questions answered by your elected representative oh. through that medium. Um, now, fair enough if you know if you're you know <laughs> Trump and you're getting a, a million tweets a day, that's a bit different. But I, I think for a, for a constituency MP, 
um, who, who wants to use that to promote their political views and communicate with the electorate, I think there should be you know, a, a right at the very least to not be blocked by them and, unless you've been abusive. Now, again, you know, there were some people discussing this on social media and they were saying, oh, well, you know, it, it's the Lincoln Labour students. It's it's not as if it's, you know, an individual that he represents that, that's made this tweet to him. But at the very least, in terms of political optics, you would think he would actually just come out with, with a response that, that is, a, is a coherent and articulate, you know, representation of what his view on this is and why he voted the way he did. Because fair enough, you know, it's, it's not actually just Labour students that will see that response, is it? It's anyone on Twitter, anyone that follows him and, and possibly a good few people that follow Labour students will see what his reply is. So you think if he had a really coherent, principled position on why he voted the way he did on this issue, he would use that as an opportunity in responding to Labour students to explain what that is. You know, I, I've, I've put out articles in the past where I've made some quite radical claims, you know, radical left-wing views expressed, and you get all sorts of blowback on the internet for that. Um, but, you know, as, as long as those people are arguing in good faith and they're not being abusive, you use it as an opportunity to advance the argument and, and, and to discuss it. And, and, you know, people are allowed to disagree with you on the internet. Like, that. that's okay. That's allowed. Um, and it, I think if he was confident in his views and confident in the reasons why he voted the way he did, he should have used that as an opportunity to... He should have welcomed that as an opportunity to explain why to, to some of his political detractors and, and a chunk of his electorate would have seen that response. And so it to me, it suggests he's not that confident in the reasons why he's, he voted the way he has. You know, it, 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 he doesn't feel like he's got an argument that would convince the electorate for why he's voted the way he has. Um, and I, I think I think it's just poor, really. I think the electorate deserves to know why he voted the way he did. Um, and, and if certain social media accounts want to ask him that, his response shouldn't be to block them. And I, I think actually, you know, from my experience of Carl McCartney, you know, obviously I don't, I don't know him well, we're not mates. Um, but from what I've seen of him, I'm thinking particularly of um, Hustings um, in, in the run-up to 2017 election, actually. Um, I mean, some of them he didn't bother turning up to. Um, but I think just just the sense I got from him was that he was sort of someone, he, he's got his views and, and that's the end of the matter, really. And if people don't like it, even if there is, if they're, even if they're potential voters, he doesn't really care, is the sense I got from him. Now, obviously, we want MPs that are principled and we want MPs that, that have their positions on things and, and, and argue for that passionately. Um, but I, I also want, at the same time, an MP that is able to have a dialogue with, with, with the electorate and, and able to explain clearly why they hold the views they do and also be prepared to, to listen to criticism of those and, and to engage with that criticism. Um, and from what I've seen of Karl McCartney, it doesn't seem like he's a person that's willing to do that, which I don't think is a very admirable trait in, in a local politician. Yeah, I, I apologise to um, Ollie, who's also our editor, uh, for my exclamation earlier. I was just looking to see uh, if Carl McCartney uh, had a blue tick, and of course he, he does. Um, but in the process of doing that, I realised that I have also been blocked uh, by Carl McCartney, uh, even though I don't think I've ever actually uh, directly um, tweeted him, uh, which is uh, very curious. So presumably he's just done that because of my position. Um, within the local Labour Party, which is very curious. It's very maybe, maybe, curious, we, should very all, maybe we should all check. Maybe we should all check to see if we've been blocked. Clearly, he's a very sensitive soul. I mean, I, I've put my position as secretary of the Lincoln Labour Party up on my uh, Twitter page, so maybe he's just seen that and gone, ah, I'm not going to listen to him. Not that he would listen to me anyway, I don't think. Anyway, uh, Callum. I think... Um, 
it's it's an interesting situation where he looking at the sort of political response to this in terms of how um, he's game played blocking the society. So I've got some of the statistics on just the um, just the Facebook post that was put up by the Labour Society and in terms of the reach that it got. So 25,133 people were reached by the post up to now. There has been 1,017 likes, comments and shares combined and there's been 6,293 clicks on the post. And there's only been one negative reaction, which was to hide the post. So I think what this shows is that McCartney has been completely uh, inept in, in his firefighting ability. Had he responded to the to the tweet of the Labour students, I think it would have gone away. I think the issue would have wouldn't have blown up as it has. But since uh, since it happened earlier this week, there's been countless local news outlets, including ourselves, interested in the story, sharing what's been going on, and clearly thousands of people also sharing, liking, reading what's been going on. And I think this has really blown back in McCartney's face. So arguably accountability is stronger now he's blocked us well, i mean what a great opportunity that would have been to to explain and engage with the electorate and explain exactly why you took the principal position you did on this vote has he has he actually done that yet has he has he released a statement i don't know because i can't read his twitter yeah <laughs> i this is what i mean you you are Fair enough, you didn't vote for the guy, but he he effectively represents you and me um, in in Parliament. He is our MP, and you cannot now access his his one of the means of his communication. I I, I don't think that's right. Unless you've been abusive to him, I don't think it's right that he's allowed to block you. I don't think he should be allowed to. Okay, maybe I'm being too radical about this. I don't know, but I think unless you've been abusive or or, or broken the terms of of the agreement with with Twitter when you sign up, um, if that is his public-facing account as your representative, I don't think you should be allowed to block you if you're one of his constituents. So out, out of interest then, would, would you, I know it's a, a much bigger topic, but would you uh, say that it was, uh, that was the case for Donald Trump as well? Um, I mean, I suppose, it, I suppose it gets more difficult, doesn't it, when it when it's... Um, when it when it's a president who, who looks after three hundred million people um, rather than someone that's a, a couple of hundred thousand, um, but but yeah, if you're an American citizen um, and you've not been abusive to the president, why why shouldn't you be able to access and see his tweets and engage with those? I think what what's the point in public officials having a you know official accounts that they use? What's the point in having them? If they're going to start blocking people and not and not really allowing proper engagement and debate on them, what, what's the purpose of them? They're just propaganda at that point, aren't they? If if you don't allow any sort of engagement or interaction with with people that might disagree with you, um, then then what's the point in them? And I, I think also I didn't answer your question. Earlier. You talked about social media. I do actually think social media can be quite an effective tool for for activism. Actually, I, I think it shouldn't shouldn't happen in its own sphere on its own. But I think when it's embedded with you know more physical activism in more normal times. Um, then, then it can be quite an effective tool, uh, really useful for organising if you if you know how to use it properly. Um, and I think also, you know, for for MPs and and other officials, if they want to reach, you know, our generation and the generation coming up below us, um, good, good luck doing it through their email inbox. 
um, as as someone that works in 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 sort of the, the youth sector, you know, work for a shoots union, I can tell you, not everyone reads their not not everyone twenty and below reads their emails very very regularly or pays attention to to their inbox that often. Um, so you know, social media, I think, is going to increasingly become a key tool for engaging younger generations in politics. Um, and you're not off to a good start if you start blocking them, are you? Mm. I try organising anyone in general using their email accounts these days. Um, but we'll um, we'll move on to our next topic, um, which is the uh, resignation of Richard Leonard, the Scottish Labour leader until recently, um, elected. Uh, just a few years ago, uh, during the Jeremy Corbyn era of the Labour Party, uh, generally considered to have a similar sorts of politics, um, quite radical uh, in many ways. But he has struggled in ways that Jeremy Corbyn really didn't, at least until 2019, uh, to reinvigorate the party up there. There's a long, long history of uh, Scottish Labour being quite complacent for decades, it used to be uh, that they said in, in parts of Scotland that they didn't count the votes for Labour, uh, they weighed them instead. Um, I have talked to um, activists up there um, in, in recent years who said that, uh, you know, the uh, Labour Party, when it was in power, especially in local government, apparently was actually quite right wing, um, like New Labour, but worse. That's how it was described. And so uh, Labour has uh, quite a poor reputation. I, was, I remember being quite astonished, actually, um, back in uh, 2014, I think, just before the um, independence referendum, uh, they had a leadership election then. And, and back then I was think, already starting to think that the Labour Party membership was growing a little bit tired of uh, Blairism and and this sort of uh, neoliberal uh, take on 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 social democracy in huge air quotes I should say, um, and uh, I could see someone like Jeremy Corbyn coming to the fore uh, when when he ran. Um, so I was quite astonished when the Scottish Labour Party elected Jim Murphy, who was the most Blairite of Blairite uh, MPs. I don't think he was even an, a Scottish MP, by the way, at that point. It was a very um, odd choice. So Scotland's Labour Party, very strange, uh, very uh, right wing. So in a way, it was quite refreshing to see Richard Leonard get elected as, as their leader. And he seems to have struggled um, in much the same way as uh, Jeremy Corbyn did with his parliamentary party. But there's much worse than that, in a way, um, because, you know, disagreements between elected representatives, I suppose, are a, a normal part of uh, party politics, even if some of the leaking and, and such was uh, uh, quite underhand. Um, much worse than that, uh, arguably, is when political party donors are exercising direct control over what's happening in political party, which is the allegation that has come out. Um, in the last few days following Richard Leonard's um, resignation. The story goes uh, that rather than being removed by Scottish, uh, Scottish Labour MPs in the Scottish Parliament, there was uh, a meeting with Angela Rayner uh, and a few other people uh, in the uh, Labour Party top brass with some high-level donors they're trying to attract back in. Um, and the donors 
presumably Scottish donors, uh, said that we will not come back, we won't start donating to the Labour Party uh, unless Richard Leonard is removed uh, and replaced with Anna Sawar, um, who is the now the front runner to become leader in Scotland. Um, and the result of that was that Keir Starmer gave Richard Leonard a ring um, and said, gave him an ultimatum, it would seem, uh, saying, if you don't resign, uh, we'll orchestrate a motion of no confidence in you and we'll see your reputation will then go, go in, the, in the toilet for having had this motion of no confidence. Perhaps he could have fought it like Jeremy Corbyn uh, did, um, but he chose not to. Um, this was uh, highlighted to me first by Callum, so I'll get your uh, uh, take on it, if that's okay, uh, Callum Roper. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting situation. Um, I think one of the best sort of summaries of, of what went on is is can be found on <clears throat> excuse me labor list um and they've written an article about it and they 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 talk about this meeting that took place um it was reported in the times originally uh and, and i'm just going to quote from from this article um the times reported that a call with donors on wednesday evening saw high net worth individuals warn they would not back the party financially with leonard in charge and UK Deputy Leader Angela Rayner and General Secretary David Evans were on the call. This prompted speculation that the resignation was a direct consequence of the donor warnings. I'm told this is not the case, and instead the SEC balance was the critical factor, with GMB a new cooperative and a new cooperative rep saying they would oppose Leonard in a vote of no confidence. Now it's interesting how that's that's uh, been played out there, but I think that what it does expose, whether we, we choose to believe that donors are involved in this specific case, is that very much at the upper echelons of the Labour Party, donors are now considered a very, very important part of the decision-making process if we've having such regular meetings with, the, uh, with, with what is potentially big donors in Scotland and indeed across the country. For me, this makes me very uncomfortable. I feel that as a democratic party, um, three of us in this call are members of the Labour Party. We're, we're paid members of the Labour Party, but we believe that our fees go towards giving us one vote for one member when it comes to uh, conference. We, we have that balanced in a different way because the trade unions also put in a lot of money and they deserve their fair share of, of the voice as well. But it seems to me that this system's now being bypassed, choosing candidates, electing national leaders, backing certain policies. This is all potentially going down the drain in favour for donors having a big sway over what we say and what we do as a party. And that makes me very uncomfortable. So whether in this case, because it's still up in the air as to exactly what's happened, it's very fresh news, but whether in this case it was specifically the donors or a combination of a number of factors, including the uh, the Scottish Executive Committee being out of favour for Leonard, it's still very concerning. And I think that we shouldn't allow this to set a precedent going forward that as a party we, we now listen to the big money people because that's what the Conservatives do. That's what the Conservative Party is. That is the party of big money. That is the party of big donors and listening to 
where the big donors want to take you. We're the party of the working people, the labouring classes, the trade unions, the ordinary aspirational people up and down this country that want to have their voice heard and have a right as members of this party to have their voice heard. So it, for me, it is a dangerous precedent to set if this is the case. Okay, well, um, while we wait for him to sort out his audio, uh, we'll go to... Uh, okay, he's going out and coming back in. We'll, we'll go to Ollie while we, while we wait for him then. Ollie. Yeah, I'd just like, to, um, just like to comment on a few things that Callum mentioned then about um, Labour being the the party of the working class, you know, the, the trade unions, um, the real working people of this country. I don't think that's the party necessarily that Keir Starmer wants to see. I mean, um, we've seen an increase in donations from, um, well, some pretty dodgy people. Uh, and he, he wants to reaffirm the almost um, the Blairite kind of days where you know, the party was backed by media barons like Rupert Murdoch. I, th- I can't remember what the, the scheme he created, um, that Keir created, was called. I think it's like the, the circle or something of, of Labour at the top. You know, that they have like a massive influence. Yeah, um, so I think maybe if Anasawa, I think he aligns more politically with Keir Starmer, um, this could be a move to, you know, reinstate you know oust another kind of socialist out of 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 power in labor and and reaffirm the fact that labor isn't no longer the party necessarily of the of the working class and that's not what Keir Starmer stands for at all um but I don't know I don't know much uh I don't claim to know much about um Scottish politics but it, it is quite concerning um probably yeah, I mean, I mean, to my mind, we we shouldn't really ever be 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 accepting, or or only in, in the very limited circumstances, should we be accepting large, you know, significant chunks of money from from private individuals or, or corporations. Really, that makes me very uncomfortable. And um, you know, fair enough, there might there might be the odd sort of rich person that genuinely believes in socialist values and 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 just wants to to chuckle at a minute at the Labour Party and and. and Fair enough, uh, yeah, and, and doesn't expect anything back for it. Doesn't expect any sort of cosy chats with Sam or anything like that. Um, but yeah, so there might be a few cases like that. But really, what our funding trajectory should be is we should be getting money in from the trade unions and from individual donations. You know, small small individual donations from from working class people. That should be our funding model. Um, and you know, you do that by having a large membership. So don't don't piss off large chunks of the membership and, and make them leave. Um, and you do it by standing in solidarity with the trade union movement when when they've got significant industrial action going on as well, um, or when they've got you know serious disputes with the government, as the NEU did recently. NEU, I don't think, are affiliated to the Labour Party, but the general point is that in general there might be some exceptional times when we don't, but in general we should be much more supportive and working much more closely with the trade union movement, um, and 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 th- that should be really where our main source of funding is coming from. We we shouldn't be chasing rich individuals and making. Um, promises to to them, um, or or compromises, or, or even considering that, because that you know that that's Blair era politics, isn't it? That that's not that's not socialism, that's not democracy, um, and it's just not necessary. If if we respect the membership, if we work on growing our membership, if we work in collaboration with the trade unions, we don't need to do that. We don't need to sort of you know make compromises on policy here and there. 
Um, it, yeah, the idea that that sort of um, way of operating should be anywhere near a democratic party is just ridiculous, I think. It's also how you lose five million votes. Callum, you want to come back? Yeah, I, I, um, I, sorry for losing connection there. I don't know whether somebody was listening. Um, the, uh, the, the big thing for me is the timing of this. Uh, in May, uh, obviously, if they're not put back, there's going to be local elections in, in Scotland um, for, for, regional, for regional seats. And I think that the, the timing of this is incredibly, uh, incredibly damaging for, <clears throat> for Labour in Scotland. I think that any change of leadership going into, into an election period is going to be damaging because you're going to have an election. There's always going to be blows um, internally, as, as we've learned ourselves from, from last year and the leadership election. People tend to, um, <clears throat> tend to have uh, their disagreements, and that's very public. And when you're doing that so near to an election, that can be damaging to how people view the party. Certainly uh, view it as a party in disarray or, or in, in disagreement with itself. So uh, that, for me, that's quite curious. I don't know if any of you had a thought about why the timing now, um, whether they're looking to secure funding for the election or whether they just want a fresh direction. But if Labour tanks in Scotland in May or whenever it will be, the question for me is who takes the blame? Is it the the recent leadership of Leonard or is it the leadership of this new leader that takes on the role? Um, uh, I'm assuming, I think they said that the uh, the election period should be done by, by the end of the month, if not next month. So it's a very quick turnaround. So for me, this is this is the key question because timing is always important in politics, as we know. People do things at certain times because they think it will benefit them. So for me, the sensible thing would have been to wait to the to the local elections in Scotland, and maybe uh, maybe then if, if if Labour did badly, then a move against against the leadership up there would would be uh, more of an obvious decision for people to to force. Yeah, I'm, well, clearly there was some pressure on him to go now. Um, don't forget these people are fundamentally stupid, I, I, I increasingly feel. Um, so changing the leader right now probably isn't the best thing for the party, but it might actually, ironically, be the best thing for Leonard, because uh, if uh, the Labour Party in Scotland was heading towards uh, a defeat in these local elections, which would then have been used to justify getting rid of him, then I suppose that's probably better for his reputation in the long run. So. Um, there's probably something in it for, for him as well in that respect. And obviously, clearly, it's been uh, triggered as Sienna Rogers in Labour list has, has risen um, by this uh, change in balance in the Scottish Executive Committee. Um, so I, I think the timing does match up in that respect. It's been triggered by this event. The, uh, the, the Blairites in the party, frankly, want to get rid of him. Um, and, it, and it works for Leonard as well. So I think all of those converging factors, because Leonard could have hung on if he wanted to. I think it would have been, uh, I think, despite this, these threats of emotion, no confidence thing, it would have been quite difficult to get rid of him, uh, much like with Corbyn. So, uh, yeah, I think that all of those facts probably combined. Uh, we'll get Ollie back in because he's, uh, he's got his hand up and we'll move on to our next story. 
Yeah, I just wanted to say a few things about um, Scottish Labour because obviously they were very heavily defeated um, famously in, in 2015 and 2017 when they lost um, 40 of their, of their 41 seats to, to the SNP. Um, this isn't a party which can afford to be making these kind of changes, I would argue, this close to an election. As Callum says, I think timing is really important and I personally would think twice before voting um, someone with such kind of temperamental leadership. They've had, um, I think it's, this will be the fifth leader since 2014. Um, so, you know, it doesn't look very good. And um, I think this is this is a section of the party which needs some quite radical change. Clearly, the people of Scotland don't feel like Scottish Labour represent them, um, although do much better in um, elections, I would say. Um, so, so, yeah, I think what's really almost kind of defeated them was their position on Scottish independence which um, which the SNP clearly got, got right because now there's a massive call for and a massive um, taste for Scottish independence Yes, which could have grave consequences uh, for the UK in general or better ones if you think that uh, UK politics needs shaking up I know that back in 2014 I uh, was sympathetic to the idea of uh, Scotland voting to break away. Uh, back then, politics was very different, of course. It was much more uh, stale, um, much more settled into the, into the, the neoliberal consensus. Um, the uh, issue of immigration was energising the bigots, of course, but it looked like we dealt with them, the decline of the BNP. It was a very different world. So. Scotland breaking away, I thought, would be the shot in the arm, which might uh, improve British politics. It didn't play out quite that way, and it's uh, played out a lot more nastily. So uh, it'd be interesting to see what uh, what happened with uh, a Scottish uh, independence vote now. Maybe it would be a little bit like Catalonia um, if uh, if uh, Scotland if the Scottish government uh, keep getting refusals from the UK government and decide to go their own way. Uh, we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens with that. But uh, returning to the uh, UK, returning to uh, the South, um, aviation has been something that has been fundamentally changed by the COVID pandemic. We've actually finally seen today uh, the UK government actually close off all uh, travel to the UK, which I think. Uh, is something that probably should have happened maybe mm, 10, uh, nine months ago, something like that, um, at the start of the pandemic. Uh, they've decided to do it now. Uh, even without those restrictions coming in, of course, aviation has uh, massively declined as a result of the pandemic, um, which is probably quite good for the environment. Um, lots of uh, the biggest, I, th I think it was something like more than half of uh, emissions from aviation come from about 5% uh, of the population constantly traveling. So that's businessmen for the most part traveling for business trips abroad. They're now meeting on Zoom, which is obviously a lot cheaper. So it's potentially has uh, really long-term effects on that particular industry. And one of the biggest aviation stories of the last well, 20, 30 years, I suppose, uh, has obviously been uh, our biggest air Port, which is Heathrow in West London. Um, huge controversy over the years uh, where the airports has been, or the way the airports authorities have been trying to expand. They've been trying to 
persuade government, political parties, other stakeholders that they need to build a third runway to expand, like some of the mega airports you see in other countries. Um, hundreds of families and lives in local villages there have been ripped up by uh, the uh, by the uh, proposals. Uh, people having to move out, losing the value of their homes. Um, and obviously, of course, the threat of ever greater pollution to the rest of West London and indeed the rest of the UK, because we're not that big of a country at the end of the day. Um, and we're not, we certainly wouldn't be able to reach our emissions targets, um, even to the point that's been challenged, even to the point of going to the, the highest courts of the land. Um, so what are the latest developments on this particular story, Callum Roper? Yeah, it's... Um... It's an interesting situation we find ourselves in because rewind a couple of years and the aviation sector had parliament, had the executive, had all the local and regional um, governments fighting to get funding into airports, into expansion, into the aviation sector. <clears throat> Move forward two years, three years, to where we are now and the pandemic, and it's completely flipped on its head. So we had an announcement from some of the bodies that represent the aviation industry saying that they're going to need financial support to keep the sector going. They're going to need financial support to essentially prop up um, what is a failing uh, sector because there's not enough passenger numbers, obviously, a lot of air corridors are now closed, certainly to British passengers, and therefore they're not making any money. And obviously in the future, business trips are not likely to be taken on aircraft, which is one of their biggest uh, sources of income. So we need to completely be rethinking the aviation sector now. And it certainly doesn't hold any of the, of the big cards that it did in the past. Um, the interesting thing, obviously, you mentioned Heathrow. And uh, as somebody that lived in South London under one of the Heathrow flight paths for, for much of my youth, uh, I, I remember distinctly a, a plane every, every minute or so coming over my house at peak hours. So it would be welcome to have a reduction in the noise and the pollution around my, around my local area back in London. But it's, it's a more serious question that, that's being begged now is that the expansion of Heathrow is, is going to be taken off the table because expanding Heathrow is not a financially viable project anymore because the aviation sector has taken such a big hit. Fleets are being retired and sized down significantly that there won't be actually the air traffic nor the demand from the general public to use this, this, uh, this sector anymore. So where does that leave us going forward? We have to look at Firstly, how do we protect jobs in the aviation sector whilst also accounting for the environmental impact of that sector? Because there is a lot of engineering jobs. There is a lot of also very poorly paid jobs. And to throw people out onto the streets with the collapse of this sector is something that we've got to grapple with. So we need to be looking at greening the aviation sector. We don't need to be looking at airport expansion, certainly in the southeast, but smaller regional airports have been applying for a lot of funding and have been ignored quite a lot. But this is the opportunity to make them champions of green transport. But also we've got to look at the fact that the aviation sector has been allowed to grow so bloated, so 
out of proportion to what it should be and our reliance on it for business, for holidays, for um, even just traveling up. And uh, There's people that commute from Scotland to London by plane because it was cheaper than taking the train. So we need to fundamentally rethink how the sector fits into the economy. And it's still important, as I, as I said before, because of the amount of jobs on the line for it. But we've also got to be looking at how do we bring those jobs into the 21st century, whether they be greener or whether we be repurposing them in local transport schemes or in, indeed in intercity transport schemes that are cost effective, value for money for passengers and also um, and probably the most important factor that they're green and they look after the environment. Yeah, I, I watched um, during the first lockdown, I watched uh, a hell of a lot of uh, videos about uh, aviation. Uh, somehow, this is just what the YouTube algorithm does to you. And um, I mean, even before the pandemic, the uh, aviation industry was changing 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, it was all about the big jumbo jets, so the Airbus A380. And now it's a lot more pre-pandemic it was a lot more about building smaller jets um, and smaller planes that could do which could do more regional service so uh, these sorts of big hub expansion projects like Heathrow were already becoming a little bit uh, anachronistic uh, before the pandemic uh, it's somewhat of an echo of HS2 isn't it where um, we talk about a lot about developing uh, regions and in the end uh, every big infrastructure project just seems to serve London in some way. Um, Ollie, what's your take? Well, um, I think as, as Callum Roper says, um, the another expansion of Heathrow, if it ever was financially viable, which I, I absolutely don't think it is, it is anymore, it was never environmentally viable. Um, I think the since, um, you know, since the, the COVID pandemic, everyone, well, hopefully everyone, almost everyone um, has like obviously not been going on holiday um, because that's that's not permitted anymore. But um, I think it's given people time to reflect. And I think what we should be reflecting on was how um, unsustainable the having a few f flights a year even is. Um, because it's just a luxury that no one else in, in history has ever had before, apart from the past hundred years. It's not something with the current technology we can be um, affording, I don't think, environmentally anymore. And um, I think this calculator is online. It's quite an interesting experiment. If you um, look at the amount of flights you, you've had over the past, say, maybe 10 years, um, and you can add up like how much... Um, carbon and how many like toxic um, emissions that's that's created it's quite I, I think you'll be surprised um, and I'm not trying to uh, be hypocritical because I've I've got a brother in Australia and I've had quite a few um, kind of holidays um, over the past five years that have been quite incredible you know I've gone to some incredible places in the world but I think it's something we should all be aware of um, especially now that the demand for it has been so massively reduced yeah, I, I remember uh, we had a, a presentation, uh, someone from Extinction Rebellion uh, came to our local uh, Labour Party um, and they said, if we want to keep warming under 1%, uh, this is the uh, allocation of CO2 that you should produce in a year. 
um, and it's possible to do if you don't fly. Um, but if you fly, you blow it all in one flight. That's just one way, by the way. Um, so obviously that's quite noticeable. Now, what I was hoping to do actually in 2020, uh, taking that on board, you know, I had my first job, I had a bit of money in my pocket. Um, air travel then was incredibly, incredibly cheap. Um, and I was looking at doing a, a trip across Europe to uh, to Corfu, where I'd been on holiday the year before, um, but by taking the train. Uh, so the the idea, and the, there was actually a growing market for it. There's there's um, a couple of new travel companies, which uh, they're worth looking up actually, which uh, do tours of Europe and other places by train and. The idea is that the journey itself, obviously it takes longer, is past the holiday. So you could go from uh, London and spend a night in Paris and then spend a night in uh, Vienna or Venice. And then you get to your destination in Greece or wherever you're going to. Um, the, the trouble is, obviously, is that that form of uh, travel is so much more expensive at the moment than than. Uh, traveling by aircraft so i think that's something that uh, uh maybe needs to improve and obviously it got blown out of the water by the pandemic anyway um wasn't wasn't really possible anymore um but i think that's uh, maybe that's that maybe that's the future of uh, of, of of tourism I, i'm not sure it would be uh, we don't really know how people are going to um behave going forwards um because aviation it has been just so uh, cheap to travel what would be the uh, the solution when when things um, do return to normal do you think that the um, industry is going to bounce back Callum or, or do you think things are going to change I I think the um, sort of reading what certain travel companies are putting out i think they're certainly desperate for customers so i think initially there's going to be this sort of post-brexit exhale and this post-pandemic exhale of people rushing around to just sort of get out because we can where we're going abroad we're going left right and center this is we're being told this is a new britain we can explore the world we're also being let out of our, our country and for most of our for most of us we haven't left the country for what will be a year and a half, and I, I haven't left, um, I haven't left since 2014. But for a lot of people, that's like part of their their yearly cycle. So I think we will have this big exhale of people flocking abroad to the beaches to have a bit of a a bit of a, uh, a detoxification from the last couple of years of stress and, uh, and and hardship. But I think in the long run. This is something that we have to look at. And I think people will be more aware of their impact now. And they'll be also be more aware of the fact that in the country, people now obviously going out for more walks uh, locally or going to their, their local seaside resorts. Obviously, uh, during the pandemic, that was quite problematic at some stages of the, of the, uh, of the summer. But people have realised that actually you can have a local holiday in terms of in the United Kingdom, which is an incredibly diverse country when it comes to different landscapes and different tastes for different people. They've realised that actually you can 
have a good holiday and re and unwind and relax and you don't have to go abroad to do that and i think that this is the opportunity if i was in the position of the government i would be less inclined to be throwing lots of money at the aviation sector obviously we've got to continue to maintain it because as i say there's a lot of jobs on the line but actually this is a great opportunity to rebuild some of our seaside resorts that have long been ignored because of cheap jet set holidays and it's a great opportunity to rebuild a number of towns and and cities and indeed some villages up and down the country that once were bustling hubs of tourism that have since been forgot for the for the beaches of Ibiza so i think that this is a great opportunity to rebuild but we need to have the priorities of the government doing that and the priorities of the government saying actually we need to be uh fostering a, a spirit of less flights but still enjoying yourself and still investing in in people and indeed resorts and companies up and down the country and that's that's a good point actually a very important one we need to make sure that people who are working in the aviation industry now are looked after um especially uh, during the pandemic and afterwards mm. um, also it's a good point as well about uh, our, our domestic tourism um, especially if we do end up as actually seems to be the, the establishment of the country even the BBC business leaders seem to be moving towards implementing a four-day working week at some point in the in their future you're not going to be wanting to travel across the world on that three uh, three day weekend, uh, but you might consider going to Skip S <laughs> somewhere like that, perhaps for, for, for just a day or two. Who knows? Um, Bradley, what's your take on it? And I think we'll uh, we'll come up. We'll start wrapping up soon. Yeah, I, th- I think um, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I, I mean, I think if you look at the, the contribution in normal years, um, whatever those were, if you look at the contribution of the aviation industry to, to climate change, it, it is significant. So obviously the number of flights worldwide needs to, to quite rapidly come down. Um, I think I this for me really emphasises the, the two sort of strands of talking about climate change, I think. Um, so so there's the sort of one strand, I think you, you find it fairly prevalent in Extinction Rebellion and, and, and the message behind a lot of their stuff. Um, maybe not so much the ones, you know, the, the people within Extinction Rebellion that come more from a, a bit more of a left or socialist sort of background who want to focus on, you know, the fossil food companies. But there is a significant strand of, of rhetoric within Extinction Rebellion and lots of other environmental groups of um, we need to be doing less. You know, we, we, we need to have more. We need to have a lot less of things. We need to be, you know, moving away from this idea of, of luxurious Western lifestyles and, and, and rapidly reducing our consumption. So is that sort of general to deal with climate change? We we need to particularly for those of us in the West, maybe maybe not in other countries, but those of us in Western industrialized countries, we need to have less of things. We we need to maybe have uh, you know uh, less things, uh, less consumption, all this sort of stuff. So this idea that to some degree there'll be sacrifices involved, but for for those of us that are lucky enough to live in in uh, you know industrialized countries that that have enjoyed luxurious lifestyles compared to other countries for for many decades. Um, then there is another sort of side of thinking. So I'm, I've just finished Aaron Bastani's book, um, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, where he, he sort of says, you know, if we, if we want to get political buy-in um, for, for climate change and all the other crises that face us, 
and you know we we need to really be emphasizing to people that if if we put in place the things that are needed we'll actually have a much better lifestyle you know that working classes and, and people in developed countries can have a much better quality of life and that, we, that there's not really you know to sort of move away from this narrative of, of personal sacrifice and um, and I, I think in terms of like the the real politic of it i think clearly Bastani's approach is going to be much easier to sell to people, you know, purely in terms of political mobilisation. If you can say to people, we can deal with all these existential threats and these crises and also make your life much better and you can live a much better quality of life and have have more, maybe not necessarily more stuff, but do you know what I mean? Like you can have a better life and a more luxurious life um, under, the, under this new system that we want to bring in. You can see how that's easier to mobilise people behind politically than, than a a sort of almost austerity sort of um you know austere sort of conditions back to a more simpler time you know you can see how that bastani approach is going to be easier to to mobilize people behind um so uh, long story short all of that applied to sort of flights and aviation makes me in two minds because i absolutely agree with, with Callum that we need to be investing in in um forgotten towns and, and areas in the UK and revitalising those areas of, of tourism, you know, for internal tourism, absolutely. Um, and as I've already said, obviously, aviation flights need to massively come down. Um, uh, one idea I have heard, but, but also on, on the flip side, I want the working class of the UK and other countries to be able to explore the world and, and, and to see the world and, and, and you know, ex- experience different cultures. And, and, and I want to do that for myself as well. Maybe that's selfish, but I, I, I want to, you know, go around the world and experience all these cultures. Um, and obviously the easiest way to do that is, is by flying. One idea I have heard floated is that um, that everyone is sort of, you know, that we, we allow a flight a year um, and then and then any any more than one flight a year is, is heavily taxed um, beyond that. And um, so, that, so that's one idea I've heard floated. Um, and of course, if you look at the percentage of, of, of flights a year, you know, it's obviously massively skewed towards the rich. It's it's the vast bulk of, of flights. So, you know, the rich jet setting off to to, to homes or, or business trips that in these days, may, uh, maybe this will be the last impact of COVID that could actually quite easily be done by Zoom. Um, but I don't know, they might be flying over and being wined and dined for a couple of days before having a, a, a series of meetings that, that really, in reality, they could just do by Zoom. So I think there's maybe some purchasing idea of beyond one flight a year, you know, there's heavy taxation on that. Um, I, don't, I don't know the figures and what that would do to emissions and things. But um, yeah, I suppose I don't really have an answer to that. But I, I'm interested in other people's views on how, how we strike this balance between actually promising people more and better and more luxury lives because I think everyone deserves that. I want people to have as much as possible, actually. Um, but how we square that with with environmental concerns and and how we message that and package that. I think that's a very, um, in a way, succinct way of putting it. I, th- I would actually say it's impossible, impossible to persuade people uh, until it comes to a real crisis point. Um, that the way that we solve climate change is through some kind of Puritan program of self-denial. Um, that we have to find a more progressive, I would say, way of moving people into more climate-friendly lifestyles, and that uh, I think that starts with actually, you know, the point about um, you know having one flight a year. I mean that's that's a bit like the um, 
the the tax rises that were proposed by Labour in in 2017 and 2019. So very very effective in 2017 by pointing out that actually 95% of people won't be affected by it. Likewise, 95% of people won't be affected by being um, essentially limited to one flight uh, through taxation because people, generally speaking, only go abroad once a year. Um, and if uh, that's actually, I think, a very positive image of, of of life going forwards, isn't it? Because as I said earlier, if we if we do end up, and I do think it's quite likely in the next ten years, we will have a four day working week um, as standard. Um, you can use that that to that, those more regular weekends uh, to travel around with within the local area or just, you know, relax, do whatever you want to do um, at home, and then once a year you you travel abroad and explore the world a little bit and and, and uh, you know see relatives. I mean, a lot of people have got relatives in other countries. I think that's a an important um, thing to recognise as well. Um, so I think that's actually quite a positive way of uh, envisaging the future and selling it to people um, not necessarily you can have your cake and eat it perhaps but you can you can almost have the best of both worlds um, and I think actually that's uh, uh, quite a, a good way to end uh, so uh, thank you for uh, your time guys always a pleasure hanging out with you um, we'll be back very very soon uh, we've got some new articles coming up on the on, on the website talking about the rent strikes in Nottingham. Should be very interesting to check out, and lots of other news that's happening uh, from a, a left wing perspective in Lincoln. But for now, um, thank you, and it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Bradley. Goodbye, folks. Stay safe. And it's goodbye from Callum. Bye everyone, uh, stay safe, uh, obviously uh, if you see anything give us a shout because we want to keep our local MP to account. And it's goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye everyone, stay safe. Stay safe everybody and we will see you next time.